Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today's guest is Jonathan Black. He is the director of the University of Oxford's Careers Service, as well as the author of the Dear Jonathan column in the Financial Times, where he answers readers' questions about career and personal development. Jonathan joined Oxford after senior roles in international management consulting, media, and publishing. His experience of organizations spans international corporations to a successful startup that he co-founded. At Oxford, Jonathan's work ranges from one-on-one -on -one student coaching to designing skills programs with senior academics, from researching school pupils' careers interests to devising international collaborations. Welcome to The Caring Economy, Jonathan Black. Thanks, Toby. Great to be here. Jonathan, our opening question is always when we talk to these great leaders in the, in the, um, in the business world as well as not-for-profit, is to tell us a little bit about their own career journeys. We're lucky to have really accomplished individuals such as yourself, but I think you and I both can acknowledge that no one got where they got by themselves. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a sort of a, a brief overview of your career journey, perhaps where you grew up, where you went to school, your first jobs, and any sort of pivots or helps you had along the way, that would be fantastic. Okay, so I started with an engineering degree in production engineering at Cambridge uh, University here in the UK. My father was a professor of engineering, and I think that partly influenced it. Um, and I, indeed, I went into engineering and I did what in those days was a, um, a sandwich course, a year in industry, three years at university, and then a year back in industry, and that was in aerospace. Um, and the motivation there was, what are we doing with uh, uh, qualified production engineers, but also learning about uh, government funded organizations, basically, uh, cost plus military providers, which is where I was working. Um, but I then uh, put in a big new computer system and said, okay, so what's next? And they didn't really have any good ideas. So I joined uh, as well as Burroughs Machines, um, now Unisys, uh, mm -hmm. on the sales side um, uh, and moved in that direction. And I was helped there by my, well, I did that for three years, but you know, that, was, that didn't have enough intellectual content for me. So mm -hmm. I talked back to my old tutor, Mike Gregory, back at Cambridge. And he said, oh, funny, you should call. Um, I've just had a call from a headhunter for recruiting people to Booz Allen Hamilton, the mm -hmm. you know, US management consultancy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I knew nothing about management consultancy at the time. It wasn't today where every undergraduate and MBA student knows all about Mancom. Um, and I went for some interviews and it seemed quite cool. And I think the story of my life is going into jobs with an instinctive feeling that this was going to be fun and this could work out, mm. but not really knowing enough. You know, three months after you're into a job thinking, I wish I'd asked these questions because now I've just learned. But in a way, the die was cast and, mm. and, and it worked out. So I was with six, uh, six years at Booz, uh, three in the UK, although very rarely in the UK, but working in petrochemicals or car manufacturing or projects in... Um, uh, aerospace, and then moved to the US to San Francisco out of that office. Again, rarely there, but moving around. So understanding US economy, US business, how that differed from the UK. Of course, the West Coast is very different from the East Coast. It, seems. it is. Yeah. Um, and then it was a chance to get out of consultancy. Um, my wife was then working in Los Angeles, and I figured 
you know, there are 17 million people live there. It must be possible to get one job, which is all I want. So I did the classic, I was introduced to the wonderful American invention, if you like, of information interviewing, um, which mm -hmm. I tell everybody about. The US are really good at it because I think of the generosity of US business people. Mm -hmm. I did ask one when I was having a long conversation with them, why are you doing this and giving me all this help? And of course he said, because you'll do it for the next person. You'll pay it forward all the time. And, mm -hmm. and that is a great thing that we could really do more of outside the US. So I really uh, benefited a great deal from that. Every contact he gave me was gold dust. I met lots of interesting people, mm -hmm. got out there. And this was for the younger listeners, you know, before the internet, before pay, uh, cell phones. So it was a huge bag of quarters in the car, driving around and, uh, and making calls off pay phones. Um, but then we, so I did that, I did that stepping stone role for a management consultant into strategic planning at Times Mirror in LA. Yep. Lots of different businesses there. They owned the LA Times, newspapers, TV stations, radio, lots of great media interests. And then we moved back to London and I became the finance director of the professional trade magazine, uh, trade publishing organization. So medical books, academic, college text reference books and so on. Did that for three or four years. And then Times Mirror sold its business. We moved to Harcourt, did that for three or four years. And then we did a startup. My then boss came back from the Frankfurt Book Fair and said, the most interesting stands were the ones with no books. Wow, digital was happening. Yeah. And this was, you know, uh, when was this? Um, early 2000s, 99, 2000. Mm -hmm. So three of us went off, co-founded it, um, raised the money fairly quickly. So expand, learned all about giving pitches in hotel foyers and Starbucks and those sorts of places. Um, and we got it going and we launched the program and then the a web bubble burst so we couldn't get second round but we sold the business to Elsevier big uh, mm -hmm. Dutch Great Elsevier, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and then I think Elsevier and I looked at each other and said this isn't going to work you've been too used to working in a small startup on your own or with like 30 40 people we're a big conglomerate so so I think that we were both right that that wasn't going to fit culturally so I did a bit of um, uh, um, it, interim management, a day a week consulting with lots of different companies. And then through my wife's work, we moved to Oxford and I worked at the business school in corporate relations, met lots of MBA students, started giving them advice on management <laughs> consultancy. And then this job was advertised. And I thought, well, I said actually what I said to you. And I've done most of the jobs, but I haven't been a banker or a lawyer, but I've worked with them in acquisitions and so on. So, you know, I'm a big believer and I've always recruited people to my current organization who've done the job. Mm. You can't replace four years at JP Morgan with just being a professional careers advisor. Now that's quite a controversial view, mm. um, but it's, it's served us particularly well. And so, so I've now been in this current role for 13 years, had mm. a bit of a, a remodeling at the beginning. Um, and indeed, the, the mantra, the philosophy is continuous innovation, what, listening to what the environment, what the students, the graduate students, the uh, DPhil, PhD students want, mm -hmm. um, and providing experiences. So students are saying, show me, don't tell me. Mm -hmm. uh, um, let's talk a little bit more about that, because um, 
both where it was when you started and where it's going now. I'm in admiration of what you've been doing. And I just reposted one of your postings for a candidate you're trying to hire. Uh, you. You're in growth mode. Uh, but what is what is what does careers service mean at Oxford, this old, one of the oldest universities in the world? And and how does one tap into that? That's a great question. Um, and there's so much to unwrap. So uh, <laughs> Oxford and Cambridge are more or less unique in the UK, maybe Durham, in terms of the tutorial system of very, very small group teaching with undergraduates. So just two people, two students will work with the tutor for an hour or two hours a week, very mm. intensely. Um, and, and, the, and the university exists for, you know, the, the, the mission is teaching and research. Uh, so it's if I if we were at many other universities, there would be a big objective about employability, employment outcomes, and so on. In a way, we are blessed that, on the one hand, Oxford academics think not quite they'll be fine, but it's not a where are they a year later. This is a five, ten, twenty year game. We are giving them training for life. People talk about uh, in other universities embedding employability in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. by which they mean very explicitly teaching oh you're a modern languages student let's spend a lecture on using your modern languages in the workplace we won't do that so we have to sit in oxford's career service alongside a highly academic research focused university and in order to thrive uh, which we do we um we have to demonstrate success and demonstrate that we're doing the right thing, but also fit and be very mindful of, of where we are and, mm -hmm. and, and who we're working with. In many ways, it's a very entrepreneurial environment. I have tremendous freedom of movement, I think, um, of saying, we're going to try this program. So like our micro internship program that we borrowed, bought, swapped with the University of Copenhagen, but we gave them a program, they gave us that one, which is a one week internship in a real business working on a real project, which has grown from nothing three years ago to about 1500 opportunities a year for students to just go out and do a year, uh, a week of, of an internship. And, and again, no one told me to do that in this university, um, except somebody who works for me said, we should do this. And I thought, let's give it a go. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very entrepreneurial place. It's a if you take it, if you mm -hmm. not quite ask for forgiveness, not permission. Yeah. But you know, one can thrive in that area. Yeah. Um, but it does mean understanding what the students really want, what's going to work. Which is back to my let's give them experiences so they can sort of try before they buy. Sure. I mean, we certainly are seeing in higher ed here in the United States a movement toward experiential education, vocational internships, opportunities, um, many of which will actually generate credit for the student. Yeah. But it sounds oh. like at Oxford, you're still very strict about it being a, a week type or a summer type experience. Yeah, it's uh, we have very short terms of eight weeks. So there's an, an intense amount of work. If you think you've got to do two if you're a humanities student, you've got to do two, say, 4,000 word essays a week, mm -hmm. eight weeks, plus lectures, plus, 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 plus you're doing your social life as well. So we fit in around all that. So we've got the summer vacation and you've got the end of each term, roughly. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, it, it's it's giving them those experiences that, that, that fit in there. And how do you build? It sounds like you've been very successful in building the trust and the confidence in the faculty. 
which probably was not an easy thing. I've worked in higher ed earlier in my career and they really, these are bifurcated organizations. There's the staff and then there's the faculty <laughs> and, uh, and wow, it is what it is. And that's before you even talk about tenure or other things. I wonder um, how, is it feedback from their students after they've graduated that say, wow, my Oxford education really made the difference. They loved. Um, there's a bit of that, you're, but you're quite right. You, you're definitely staff. You're below stairs and, and they're above stairs. And that's, you know, but don't fight that. That's fine. So right. again, it's back to my point that we just need, when I, when I interviewed for the job, I had pulled up the rankings and the rankings or some ranking I got was broken into seven pieces, seven different filters. Oxford was scoring number one or two on everything except graduate outcome, where we were 10th. Wow. And I said, this cannot be right. The career service has to be as good as all these other things, all the academic teaching you do and the research quality and so on. So we have to be at that. And then, so A, let's get the service better. B, let's tell people, you know, just drip, drip, drip. This, we are doing well. We are getting this number of people. We've got the employment levels up to this. I'm not expecting great feedback. I'm certainly not expecting a pat on the back. Mm -hmm. but what I am doing is just dripping away that this is a long game mm -hmm. and you know i figured it and i don't think oxford's unique but i figured it took five years and then people all i wanted was for reputation to grow for people to say oh yeah the career service is good that's all they need to say um, so, uh, sorry um so i'd like to ask you then a little bit about the student expectations and then about the employer's expectations on the student side, you and I have talked before about um, this concept of uh, an NYU professor has introduced me to about the coddling of the American mind and how American university students show up and they've been largely or somewhat coddled by their parents on their phones every day with their parents choosing courses, choosing what to eat in the cafeteria. Uh, and therefore, they're a little bit slowed in their um, in their experimentation with everything from course selection to sex drugs, driver's license, all kinds of things, according to these two professors. Um, is it similar in the UK? Are these students coming in more coddled than ever? Are they more independent and in thinking? Do they, do they come in to you and say, my mom or dad want me to do this and help oh, me do well. it? Okay, so there's going to be a broad range. I don't think it's quite as far over as, as you were describing in some of mm -hmm. the US. Um, there, there is definitely that, and we will keep emphasizing. And I have a role in my in new college, the college I'm a fellow at, as well as welfare tutor, saying, "You're over 18. You are an adult. We are not talking to you. We cannot. We're not legally allowed to call your parents, mm -hmm. um, which is a good thing because you can get up to whatever you get up to, and we're not reporting. But it's a bad thing because it means if you're ill, put your hand up. We're not coming around to see you." So we're not your parents. And, and I think most of them get that. In terms of on the career side, um, yeah. You, I mean, some of the most fascinating one-to-one -one conversations that all of my, I and my colleagues have are when they, you have 15 minutes talking about how they're going to be a lawyer. And at the end, they say, you know, I just don't want to be a lawyer. I want to do stand-up wow. comedy or be a chef or be anything brilliant. Sit down, let's start again. Um, it's sometimes it's not so much the parents as the uh, peers mm -hmm. you know, all my friends are going into 
banking, consulting, whatever it is. And well, you know, engage brain and start thinking. Do you enjoy consulting? No, not at all. Right, forget it then. What do you enjoy? Arts and heritage. Okay, let's talk about that. You know, there's no, there's no right answer to this, by the way. I remember a student, she came, she was at a one-to-one on the last day of term. And she said, look, what am I going to do with my English degree? And I said, you're going home tomorrow, aren't you? And it was like the Christmas vacation or something. She said, yeah, I am. So this is really a question for your mother, isn't it? And she said, yes. Okay, let's get the answer for your mother. So you can go home and get them off your back and say, well, A, I've been to the career service. B, look at all the things that English students, uh, people who study English go on to. Um, So uh, are they coddled? No, I mean, we sort of drop them into things quite a lot. I mean, the whole student consultancy program is, right? You're a team of six, you wanted the real world. I remember when we trained them. So this is when they go off and they do a project in a local business for and not for credit but for about a week or two weeks whatever in the team and uh, we say you know what during the training many of these businesses will do what you recommend Mm -hmm. they will actually follow your recommendations good point and they go deathly quiet and i say well you did ask for the real world this is the real world this is not an essay that you write and then it just gets filed this is life you know this is people and their businesses doing things you wanted it here it is so embrace it you'll be fine you'll be fine i'm sure they are fine um tell me what the employers are saying when they come to you now are they doing do you do career fairs with recruiters or and and have their expectations changed over the past five or ten years We do about 10 careers fairs. There's one general one, and otherwise they're themed by industry sector. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, last year they went all digital. Uh, we're going to keep that this, this coming autumn term as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they, the, the digital ones are tremendous for helping a much wider range of students. People who don't like those noisy rooms with sharp-elbowed colleagues trying to push them out of the way and, and all that. So they like that. Um, our employers looking for different things, not particularly, I would say. I think they, you know, we ask employers all the time. We have focus groups of employers. We have um, influencer groups of really senior employers about what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, we survey employers regularly and ask them, so what on the employability skills, let's leave aside the technical skills of accountancy or chemistry or medicine. But what are you looking for in people? And we keep coming back to the same things of teamwork, number one. Can they play nicely together? Do they work well together? Um, Curiosity, leadership, business awareness. And you say, well, what do you mean by business awareness? And then they usually say something unhelpful, like we'll know it when we see it. could you be more precise and they say well that they it's not about reading the ft every day or reading the economist or business week or something it's about if they're a lawyer or they're an engineer they'll take a story relevant to law but it might be law and sport or something they're interested in and they'll drill down into it Mm -hmm. i think my colleagues would understand this and, and and they feel this sometimes that Sometimes the students who are incredibly sharp and doing research and writing essays and deep analysis of things, they kind of park all those skills and think going for a job is something that doesn't need any of those skills at all. And they think you can knock it off in about 10 minutes. Mm 
And mm. you say, but this application could be the next five years of your life. Mm-hmm. Whereas that's just an essay for next Friday. Come mm-hmm. on. Like, you wouldn't go to an exam with no revision. Well, why would you go to an interview with no prep? Come on. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of get it and say, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that touches on another question I have for you, Jonathan, Mm -hmm. which is about the tools of the trade these days and and where the younger uh, careerists are going. Are they are they putting everything in the LinkedIn basket? Do they use Handshake? Do they use um, Indeed.com? Are there any sort of top tools that you're finding they seek out, whether you recommend them or not? Or are there some that you might recommend to the degree you're able to? Um, yeah, LinkedIn is there, social media are there, of course. And for some people, the LinkedIn works. It's a, it, it's not as developed an economy on LinkedIn on this side of the Atlantic as it is in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we There are tools around, that, uh, electronic tools that will assess your resume, that will assess your applications and all of that, that, that will help you turn the handle to think about you know to tell you you should be an accountant or a you know a deep sea diver or whatever it may be mm-hmm. i'm afraid we tend to issue nearly all of those we think there is no substitute for you've actually got this is hard work you've got to sit down with a blank sheet of paper and actually think now we do we created one tool ourselves called career weaver which does not give you the a test type answers about you should be an accountant but it does help you decide what are my values what's really important to me um but but again it's a bit like the point i just made which is you you'll spend three days working on an essay about napoleon can't you spend three days thinking about Mm -hmm. actually what is really important to me is it social purpose is it intellectual challenge is it high pay um, which industries, what am I really good at? I actually, I'm really good at inspiring other people. I'm not very good at working on my own. I like all that sort of stuff. Sit down and think about it. We can give you frameworks. And from that, the, the resume and the job search will drop out. But mm-hmm. um, I, I'm afraid I don't think there's any substitute for those, uh, for that sort of sure. paper, old school, paper-based, hard thinking. Now, some of those tools can can be useful in that they tell you, they might give you an answer that you then reject, but that's in itself quite useful to do. But there's something there's something like talking to friends and saying, and going to careers fairs actually, and mm-hmm. going to meet employers and talking to people and uh, you know talking to mentors about, do you think I'd be any good at this? Mm-hmm. Doing all those information interviews. You know, I think of myself, I'm a really good team player. I'm not the captain, but I'm a great follower. Mm -hmm. things and i'll get stuff done and i watch make sure we deliver on time and you know does that make me useful for this job would that make me a good lawyer or a good this and then you know there's nothing like putting your own skin in the game and making it rather than absolving all your your um uh, responsibility onto a machine the other problem with machines is they kind of imply that's what you are you're now an accountant Mm-hmm. And of course, we know in 10 years time, you might think, no, actually, I'm going to become a chief exec or a general counsel. I'm actually I'm going to go and set up, go and be a teacher in a school or I'm, you know, we are not frozen at 20. This is your career. Not anymore. We never have been. I mean, I'm a good example. We never have been. And we certainly aren't now. 
Yes, and like the academic training that such a fine school as Oxford gives its students, it really is a, a process, a, a, a dialogue, either with the tutor or with mm. those that you seek career advice. But you've got, I coach people all the time to have a purpose statement. What, what is it that moves you, that you excel at, that you're excited about, that you would almost die for? And how do you declare that in a sentence, right? And then once you yeah. declare that to your own self and you write it down, then test drive it with those you trust, those who will tell you how crazy you are to think that, or those who will say, oh my God, that is so you. But you've got to have that iterative process. And if you layer mm -hmm. then those careers fairs and things you describe, it's I think it's great advice. But actually that last bit of you tell other people, A, that's really important. And B, other people will say, but you, but you do realize you're really, really good at this. Mm -hmm. Why is that not in there? Mm -hmm. say, oh yeah, but because I think, again, maybe because they're bright, they've done really well. They, if there was a general point, they undersell themselves because mm -hmm. they think, oh yeah, but everybody does that. And so no, you know, you've got to, they don't. They don't all set up a student society and recruit 20 members mm -hmm. who pay five pounds to come to a show. I mean, they don't all do that. Um, so, yep. so again, that's sometimes that's our, uh, that's our role is to go through their resume and be saying, but you know, hang on, this is really good what you've done here. Let's bring this, why is this buried away in the depths of it? Mm -hmm. And the other reason I like to see things distilled down to a simple CV or a declaration of a, say, a purpose mm -hmm. statement is that uh, I say this to people all the time. You want to make sure that you've given your message to someone so that when you might not even be in the room, he or she can represent you and say, oh, you need to meet this fellow or this gal because she's that perfect person. So if we can distill it and communicate it and test it, then I think it's more likely to have a ripple effect when they go out into the world. So I completely yes, that's that classic um, what people say about you when you're not in the room. <laughs> exactly. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, we're thrilled to have Jonathan Black. He is the director of Oxford University, the University of Oxford, rather, Careers Services, as well as a Financial Times columnist who writes the Dear Jonathan column. I'd like to ask you a little bit about that, uh, Jonathan. Um, yeah. Tell us, how did a career advice column come up in particularly in such a stellar publication as the Financial Times? It is, it is a stellar, and I, I'm, I'm still sort of thrilled and honored to, to see that, that name in lights. Um, uh, well, I, I had a rule with the department that any time a journalist called, it came to me, and it came to me within two hours. I had to find you had, because journalists move on quickly. So if you're going to, I mean, you might choose not to engage with a journalist, mm -hmm. but if you are going to engage, you've got to engage quickly. And so I built up a relationship um, with one of the journalists who's still there at the FT. She would call about every six months. I've got a view on this. We've got any data on that. And I was always very open and shared what we had. And then one day she said, oh, Lucy Kellaway's moving on. One of the things Lucy did was the uh, sort of uh, agony aunt thing and I said oh well if you're ever looking for somebody you know I'd be interested and she said oh really and I thought what have I just said <laughs> okay yeah and then about two months later they said well we'll do a trial one and then we never did a trial one we just went straight in and mm -hmm. here we are well we're coming up to number 100 mm -hmm. question and um I have to say I thought we'd be done by about 10 but mm -hmm. uh, these questions keep coming and they are sometimes career they're mid-career late career early career um, not always about career. Uh, some of my favorite ones have been um, 
I'm moving to, I've fallen in love and moving to Washington DC because that's where my partner is. And, um, you know, what, how do I, what do I do? What am I going to do? Or I have all, another one that fell in love with the dentist who they were moving and he, and the other one couldn't move. And I don't know. So we, yeah, slightly, I mean, career related, but these are, it has about a 10, I think a good, you know, 20,000 page views each time, sometimes mm -hmm. more, it just depends on the question. Quite variable. It's fantastic. And for our listeners, Jonathan, um, it is Jonathan, I'm uh, sorry, it's uh, dear.jonathan at ft.com for people. Sure is. And um, yeah, and there's an article coming next week where I followed up seven of them, um, okay. uh, you know, a year later to say, okay, so what happened and how useful was it? Because it's not just my advice, uh, it is also the advice that comes from readers who can, who can add in there. And you know what? The readers are really good. Absolutely. They give great advice. Um, and uh, this might be tempting fate, but we don't normally get any trolls on there. We get It's a serious corner mm -hmm. of the FT where people give very, very good advice. I agree. I've, I've enjoyed reading that particular element because I think I've had great bosses and great brands that I've worked for. And why limit yourself to just one person? Um, it goes back to that earlier point we we're making about sort of test driving your concept or your belief. So if you mm -hmm. state this advice and then others affirm it, it makes it even more potent for your readers. So great idea. Um, can you say a little bit or is it to, is it could you reveal what we might see in that uh, summary one year later of those seven subjects? <laughs> um, what do we see that that? Well, I've already made the first point, which was that the readers give great advice, and mm -hmm. and uh, and indeed that's what often makes the column. By the way, I don't read their advice before I write what I do. I would not. I, I, I scan it afterwards, but I uh, sometimes. Um, uh, some people followed it. Some people ignored it. Um, uh, some people. One. I, there, there's a woman in there who was quite surprised by some of the people's attitudes because uh, she was a young mother and was, you know, the commute was concerning her and so on. And there was, there were some rather archaic views that were, were sent, but other people, um, generally, other people found it pretty positive and helpful. Yeah, I'd say. Uh, it's gathering that broader sense of advice. that, we get that uh, And when will it publish? So the column came out this Monday, which was the August 30th. Okay. Um, so and roll forward another week. Okay. Well, we'll intersperse it. But yes, any questions that your listeners have? So it sounds like range, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the um, to begin with, my editor was saying, "Well, which one do you want to do next?" And I figured, no, this is like an exam. It doesn't really matter. Let's just just take them off the top. Yeah. And by the way, the other question I always get is, are, "Do we make any up?" And the answer is no. They are all genuine readers' questions. Sometimes they write us four paragraphs, and we have to distill it. To get to the essence of the question mm -hmm. um, and we that's why we love our editors <laughs> yeah well i i have a great admiration for editors you know i would <laughs> i write what i think is a perfect column and it comes back better absolutely i i love being edited myself as someone who's written my whole career uh, mm -hmm. um so one last question i have for you jonathan is about diversity equity inclusion um clear, clearly uh that has yeah. been so top of mind globally, not just in the US. How, and it's a broad question, but take it however you want. How does it manifest itself right now at, at either Oxford and or in your column? It's such a, a, a significant moment we're in in history. 
It is. Um, uh, and uh, the, the thing I'm most worried about is the unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. bit where we just don't realize we're doing it and it takes somebody else to say hang on you do realize when you use those words that it has this effect so we're learning and listening all the time for that um mm -hmm. oxford had, thanks to um uh, entrepreneur sequoia capital michael moritz uh he gave a huge amount of money to support social mobility um so now uh he created the Crankstart scholarships um, everybody, every student who comes from a, um, uh, a family household income below median, which is about in this country, about £27,000 a year, everyone who comes from any household income below that, untested, just prove that, uh, they get onto this grant, they have a particular uh, career support that we can arrange internships for them, they get a, quite a big fee remission. Um, so Oxford at, at that level is doing a great job. It's probably the most generous uh, scheme in the UK. Um, on the career side, we were having this discussion the other day because I do know some universities do run programs targeting um, particular demographics. Mm -hmm. um, and we are thinking, well, just a second, what is the problem we're trying to solve here? Is there a problem first? Now, every I've done it three times now. It's published on our website and the university website. I've taken the admissions data of undergraduate students where we have all the demographic data. We don't have it for graduate students because most of them are from abroad. Mm -hmm. I've taken the admissions data and matched it with the employment outcome data to put the two together. Because my question was, does social background, however we measure it, influence or have any effect on employment outcome? And I looked at what type of school they went to, uh, you know, state school or independent school, um, race, household income, sex, um, a disability. There's at least five, there are a couple. Oh, um, there are some postcode, zip code type um, mm -hmm. assessments in the UK called Polar and ACORN, which assess for uh, wealth of the, of, the, of the postcode area but also assess for propensity to go to higher education. So again, we can look at which quintile did you come from in the ACORN and the polar group. So lots of measures of social background. And then I looked at outcomes and I looked at um, salary, obvious, uh, unemployed, but looking for work. And, and then are you in a graduate level job? Because all the jobs get coded by SICK and SOP codes. Mm -hmm. um, so is it a graduate level job? And the great conclusion that has happened three years in a row is there is no connection between the two. There is no association statistically significantly between the two. So mm -hmm. we're doing something right. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing something right. Employers also, you know, probably don't care what school you went to or what your background was. Can you do the job mm -hmm. uh, at that level? Now, does that sort the problem out for 10 years time, 20 years time? Well, it kind of gets a bit beyond us there but so so we know from the data and i doubt if oxford is unique but it's not that is not the national picture in the uk at all we know that yes but in oxford this sort of approach treating everybody saying all our programs are open we have resisted running very focused targeted programs because well it's making some quite paternalistic suggestions that you know 
well, you look like a poor person. Perhaps you better come and have this extra help. Oh, hang on. You know, you don't know anything about them. They mm-hmm. might be completely fine. They might not want it. They don't want special treatment. So don't don't interfere in this way. Don't make these gross assumptions. So we, we but we just need to make sure that all our programs are open and, mm-hmm. and are seen to be open and are welcoming for everybody. Um, it sounds like without a, a very scientific, academic, or quantitative analysis, but the old-fashioned gut check, that things do feel more inclusive at Oxford today than perhaps when you joined over a decade ago. Uh, yes, I think so. But the university itself has moved probably... Um, I mean, one big percentage we always look at is, well, other people look at it for us, is the percentage of the undergraduate intake who come from private schools. Mm-hmm. And that's dropped now to about 32%. It used to be probably 50. Well, if you go back far enough, it's probably 100. But, you know, it was um, uh, that. So, so the state school percentage is creeping up. Now, I know that is not the right, it's not a good enough measure because mm-hmm. people mix it up with schools and lots of... Um, poorer people end up at private schools because they're very generous bursaries, et cetera, et cetera. But that's why I went back to basics about household income and so on. I mean, employers do quite a lot. Employers try to target particular groups. Mm -hmm. I know some banks who won't come and recruit in general, but they'll say, well, one way they can do it is by funding student societies. So here's a student society for women in business or for uh, the BAME in business or and they'll go and give them money but not the mainstream if you like mm-hmm. um, but but we make assumptions at our peril sure that's so not too really yeah well i i i salute you in that effort i think that we all um it, it it's a movement across time we're never really at a point of arrival so i try in my own work my own coaching and even in my office to ask myself and ask my colleagues to go into new meetings, new projects, and ask ourselves, how can we make this even more inclusive? How can we make this even more progressive? And if we start to make that almost like a muscle that we exercise, then I think we do kind of get to that unconscious bias you spoke of earlier, um, and that we can all play a positive part in where we need to go. I, I believe that most people are, but we need with our platforms do more and i know you're doing that so uh, i commend you in that well i think the uh we can do it through the structure of what we do so i think the micro internship program was really helpful if you're from a poorer background who and we have plenty of students who have never been to london or have never bought an airline ticket never done this and so to ask them you want an internship we've got some great ones in shanghai you know that's a step way too far why mm. don't we start with around the corner at um, the Bodleian Library uh, mm-hmm. for just a week, not even. And it means if you have a summer job that you need to earn money to keep the family going, then you can squeeze in an internship for one week, get a great thing on your CV or resume, yep. and then still do the rest of your job. So I think we try to do it that way as well. Mm-hmm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm going to let him have the last word. Today's guest on The Caring Economy has been Jonathan Black. He is the director of the University of Oxford's Careers Services and the Financial Times columnist, who you can write for career and personal advice at dear.jonathan at ft.com. Jonathan, you have the last word. Oh, well, it's just been a pleasure to talk about these and to have the chance to tell you all the, all the great work we're doing and have still got to do. Thank you, Jonathan Black.